There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Mr. Kreminski and Mr. Andrews. Hey. Greg, do you find it funny when you're referred to this way? I certainly don't think of myself that way. Do people call you that? On occasion, yes. Yeah, and how does it make you feel? It makes me feel old or really old. It does to me too. You know, my kids' friends will often call me Mr. Andrews. Some of them call me coach because I've coached a number of them over the years. But Mr. Andrews always gets me and I always say, listen, Mr. Andrews lives in Saskatoon. You can call me Colin. Yeah, there you go. And it is very different than when we grew up, right? I ran into a friend of mine. I know this is totally off what we're talking about, but a friend of mine, my best friend in high school, his name's Jermaine. Jermaine. Yep. Yeah. I've heard of him. Yeah. And his mom always wanted to be called Mrs. Brown. I talked to her when I was about 42, 43 on yep. the phone one day. Yep. And I said, hey, Lorraine, it's Colin. And mm-hmm. she said, it's Mrs. Brown to yep. you. Yep. <laughs> Those aren't real names, by the way, but that did really happen. But yep. we're not talking about that today. Today, we're talking about something we've been getting a lot of questions on recently, and that is the U.S. debt ceiling and the fact that there's this pending vote to either raise or not raise that debt ceiling, and the fact that the U.S. may default on its debt payments for the first time in history. Right. So this, of course, could have some pretty significant economic impact, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, you know, is it something that we should be worried about? And I think the short answer to that, Greg, is I don't lose any sleep over it. Well, you know, speaking of losing sleep, I actually, do you ever one of these nights where you, you wake up for whatever reason, 3, 3.30, and then that's it, you're done, you're wide awake, and you keep trying and you lie there hoping that you'll fall asleep, but... Do you go downstairs and get like a bowl of ice cream or something? Never. Or the Dagwood Bumstead, go down and make yourself a big sandwich? No, never no. done that. So listen, I mean, I am a little tired, so if you find that I'm redundant, I'm repeating <laughs> myself or saying things over and over again, yeah. let me know. Well, maybe it'll just limit some of your scholarly words that you usually throw in there. Well, that could be. But listen, the U.S. debt ceiling is a critical aspect of the country's fiscal policy, and we've spent a lot of time talking about fiscal and monetary policy. The difference on that between the government responsibility and the central bank's responsibility But before we get into some of the details, I thought we should start with some of the basics. So, Greg, maybe spend a minute, if you're not too tired, to explain what the debt ceiling actually is. I think I can make it through. Okay, good. Well, the U.S. debt ceiling, first of all, it's primarily made up of two components. There's the debt held by the public and what they call intra-governmental debt. So the debt held by the public just refers to the portion of the U.S. national debt that's owed to individuals, corporations, foreign governments, and other entities outside the federal government. For example, many clients might want to own bonds. Of course, most of our clients own bonds. And one type of bond would be a federal government bond. In the U.S., that would be, you know, they call them U.S. Treasury bonds. And that's a form of debt, okay? So the government owes that money to the bondholders. And they issue those bonds to pay their bills. Exactly. Yeah. 
So it's the amount of money borrowed by the government through issuing things like the Treasury securities, bills, notes, and bonds, that kind of thing to finance all their spending. And then there's also intra-governmental debt, and that consists of funds that are borrowed by the U.S. government from specific government trust funds, such as the Social Security Trust Fund or various federal employee retirement funds, things like that. Intra-governmental debt arises when the government borrows from these funds to finance current spending obligations and essentially leaves IOUs with the, the trust funds. Kind of like in Dumb and Dumber when they find a suitcase full of money. And they spend all the money, but they just keep putting IOUs into the suitcase. Oh. Do, you, do you remember that scene? <laughs> I don't, so. no. <laughs> but yes, like that. <laughs> yeah. So both the debt held by the public and intergovernmental debt contribute to the total U.S. national debt. And the debt ceiling, therefore, encompasses both of those amounts. And the important thing is the ceiling basically relates to the maximum amount of debt that the U.S. government is allowed to have under the Constitution that has to be raised by Congress every time that limit is breached. And so what was the number, Colin? The U.S. debt limit has been raised how many times? It was like... Around 90 times since 1960. And the most recent was December of 2021. So not that long ago, really. Yeah. So essentially what happens typically is that the government runs deficit budgets. Therefore, the debt is bound to increase every year. And Because of the Constitution, which says that the limit has to be raised by Congress, it needs to go to a vote, essentially, every time they breach that limit. You know, interestingly, there were four times since 2013 where the U.S. debt ceiling was suspended. And one of them, in particular, where President Obama at the time signed a bill to to get rid of the debt ceiling. And not all countries have debt ceilings, right? So No, that's right. And I think there's a lot of people that believe that it's a terrible process to have to go through every year or two or three. And it would be far better if the debt ceiling were just eliminated altogether. And it's a big deal still, right? Like, well, it's a huge deal. And what's going on right now, which we'll get into a little bit, is we'll talk about why it's so important. But I think it's important to note that the debt ceiling doesn't actually represent new spending or future commitments, but it's really an authorization to fulfill existing financial obligations that have already been approved. So all the spending that was approved by Congress over the last several years contributed to the national debt today. And so that's what is being paid off. And that's what a lot of the fight about, of course, is that it doesn't deal with future spending. It deals with past spending. But the bottom line is when the debt ceiling is reached, the government has to seek approval from Congress to raise it in order to continue borrowing and, and meet its financial obligations. Sure. And so there's a couple of reasons that this is a big deal. And we're going to go through five or six of them. But the first one is just this risk of default. Just like anything else, any borrower that risks not making their payments on time, that has consequences. And so if the U.S. government was to be unable to meet its financial obligations, it could lead to what's termed a default. And that default occurs when the government is simply just unable to make interest payments, as you say, on the debt that it's already committed to. So I think this is the big misunderstanding by most people is that this is not new debt. They're not saying we need to add this much more debt for the next year. They're saying we need to approve this debt limit to pay back our already incurred expenses. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So again, there'd be severe consequences for the economy, financial markets, the government's credibility. It could erode investor confidence. It would increase borrowing costs. 
and could potentially trigger a financial crisis. And none of those things are good, Greg. No, I think as they said to Egon in Ghostbusters, you know, when they were talking about what happens if you cross the streams, the answer is it would be bad. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's what you're trying to say here. Well, it could be. I mean, especially we're coming out of pandemic, record raise of interest rates over the last 18 months or so, right? I mean, already arguably in a recession, this just adds fuel to the fire. And and so there would be, the second point of that would be there would be a, a massive impact on financial markets, right? Sure. I mean, the debt ceiling debate and the potential for a default just simply creates uncertainty in markets and markets don't really like uncertainty, no. right? No, that's right. So investors may become more cautious. They might demand higher returns on U.S. Treasury bonds. And this, of course, leads to an increase in borrowing costs for the government. You exactly. Know, so if the yields on T-bills needs to go up, to satisfy the appetite of those lending their money to the U.S. government, the borrowing costs go up for the U.S. government, and those costs are incurred by U.S. citizens, right? And I think there already has been, back in 2011, there was a downgrade of U.S. federal government debt from AAA to AA+, or something like that. I thought it was uh, like AAA high to AAA low, or... Something like that. I can't that. remember, but it was a downgrade, which which actually had a fairly significant impact right there. Yeah, when you have those downgrades, as I mentioned, it affects the economy. It affects interest rates for businesses and consumers. It obviously affects the stock market and just overall economic stability. So the third item I'll talk about before passing over the mic is disruption of government operations. This is a big deal, right? Yep. So if the debt ceiling's not raised, the U.S. government may not have enough funds to pay its bills. And that's, I mean, every person in, that lives in the free world understands if you don't have enough money to pay your bills, it's not a good thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. So this could lead to things like a government shutdown where certain non-essential services and operations are suspended. It could disrupt various sectors, including things like federal agencies, public services, government contractors, I mean, all kinds of bad things. And I guess a recent example of this in Canada would be like the strike that went on with, was it CRA or? Yeah, well, with the federal. Federal workers. I mean, it was very short-lived, but when did they strike? At a time when people were trying to do their tax returns. Exactly. Which led to a slowdown, right? Yeah, no, right on. So there's also like political implications and really the debt ceiling has become a highly contentious political issue. Because raising the debt ceiling requires approval from Congress and it you know, often leads to fairly heated debates and political maneuvering. And we're in a position like that right now because what's happening, and you tend to find, and this is not, I'm not making a political point, I'm just stating a fact. Republican Congresses, uh, Republican-controlled Congress like we have now with the House of Representatives, tend to fight more about raising the debt ceiling than vice versa. And they tend to do it based on the fact that they believe that the debt ceiling has been breached because there's too much debt, because there's too much spending, and they often use it as a way to try to exact some budget cuts in areas that are important to Republicans. And so you do see that when you go back over the history of debt ceiling battles, you tend to find that they're more contentious when it's a Democratic president trying to raise the debt ceiling than when it's a Republican president trying to raise the debt ceiling. Again, not making a political comment, just, you know, stating the facts. Mm -hmm. These facts, though, will be skewed depending on where you get your news stream from. 
Well, yeah, but there are there are certain facts. It's like you know the facts relating yeah. to how difficult was it for Democrats to raise the debt ceiling, and how difficult was it for Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. Well, I find it funny that there's always a fight over it, regardless of who's in power, right? So Democrats have you know two of the three houses, and the Republicans have one house, right? And so there's this idea that well maybe they won't pass the debt ceiling, but as you say, it's this is not new money. No, that's right. And so why do they do it? Why do Well, they- and they do it because it's a political calculation. It's like we're against, you know, big government spending and therefore how can we raise the debt ceiling without addressing the cause of the need to raise the debt ceiling? So it's a political football. We're in interesting political times right now and so so the risk of a default maybe is different than it would be under different circumstances. But again, uh, the the key thing is it's a highly political uh, issue right now. Other issue, there's certainly long-term fiscal challenges that would come from this because the debt ceiling debate highlights the broader challenge of just managing the U.S. national debt. And again, as I mentioned, because it's been steadily increasing over time and it's driven by factors like government spending, budget deficits, interest payments, etc. So while it's necessary to raise the debt ceilings to meet existing obligations, it also serves as a reminder of the need for responsible fiscal policies which include controlling spending, increasing revenue, and addressing long-term budgetary issues to ensure what everybody wants, which is sustainable economic growth. So given all of those factors, the debt ceiling is a critical issue that requires thoughtful and timely resolution because we want to avoid the potential outcome and financial consequences of not resolving it. And it also underscores the importance of fiscal responsibility, you know, sustainable budgetary practices, and effective governance. You know, and of course, if that's handled, then maybe the debt ceiling issue goes away. Well, it sounds like four times in the last 10 years, they've tried to make it go away and it hasn't. It's always come back as a thing, right? And as you said already, the debt ceiling is, it's set by Congress on the amount of national debt that the U.S. government can accumulate. So it's like a, it's like a big credit card, right? Exactly. It's like a credit limit on a big credit card. And the government can spend money up to the credit limit. And beyond that, it requires an approval to raise the limit, right? Yeah. And actually, I believe that the debt ceiling was actually reached back in January of this year. So five months ago. And the discussion or the need to address it has been able to be like the can that got kicked down the road, you know, as they say, because the Treasury Department is currently utilizing what they call extraordinary measures to continue meeting its financial obligations. So they're moving money around essentially from program to program in order to meet their debt payments. But according to the Treasury Secretary, that will probably run out on about June 1st. Which isn't that far away. And so it's obviously a delicate situation, and, and that's why we're talking about it today, because we've had a number of people say, well, what happens if the U.S. defaults on that debt payment, right? What if they don't raise the debt ceiling? And my comments back to people are typically like, what is the chance that they don't raise the debt ceiling? It's, it's pretty low, right? I mean, there is an outstanding chance that they don't. But I think most people would think that calmer heads prevail because nobody wants to have this potential default on U.S. debt. I mean, the severe consequences for the economy and global financial markets, I mean, they'd be impactful. Well, and there's, and there's a point where political brinksmanship, you know, sort of meets head on with the reality of every 
senator and every congressman is responsible for people in their districts. And these people, everyone will have somebody impacted by the consequences of a debt default. And so, yeah, so you'd like to think that calm heads would prevail. And if something did happen, it would be relatively short-lived. But, you know, in some countries, the debt limit is set by legislation, but like, you know, similar to the U.S., but in others, it can be established through budgetary laws or other provisions. And, you know, the purpose is generally the same, to ensure some fiscal discipline and prevent excessive government borrowing. And so there are other countries that go through similar issues, but in different ways. Well, like our country. Yeah. I mean, countries like Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, we all have some form of debt limit or debt management policies in place. I mean, I think that's pretty standard practice to have a way of dealing with your national debt in place, right? Yeah. But it's just important to note that the specific details and mechanisms can vary pretty significantly from one country to another. Like we obviously in Canada have a debt issue at times, sure. right? But we don't have this debt ceiling that needs to be passed by, I don't know, the House of Commons every 18 months, right? right? No, exactly. Like it just doesn't happen that way. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, each country's debt management system is tailored to its unique economic and political circumstances. And, and ideally, there's a balance between the government operations, funding the government operations, and maintaining a sustainable level of debt. Okay, because obviously the impact of a default, as we've talked about, would be very far-reaching and we wouldn't want, you know, in an ideal world, we don't have to reach that point over and over again each year. Right. I'm just going to take a side note here. Like on that, there's a reason why when you buy U.S. Treasury bonds, their yield is, I don't know what it is right now, like the 10 years, like 3.6 or something, 3.5. Yep. yep. There's a reason why Venezuelan bonds are like, I don't know, 9 or 10%, right? Because they have a larger chance of defaulting on their debt, right? Well, that's right. And another brief diversion, but talking about bonds, which we've talked about a lot, but really, as we've talked about in the past, there's basically two risks related to bonds. One is term risk. You know, what is the term to maturity of the bond? Because the longer the term, the more volatile in price it would be. Because of interest yeah. rates. That's right. And the other is credit risk. Yeah. How credit worthy is the issuer of the bond and how likely are you to receive the interest payments and your principal back at maturity? Right. And so typically when we buy corporate bonds, we're taking on more credit risk. Obviously, a lot of corporations, it's much more likely to imagine them running into trouble and not being able to meet their obligations. And so you tend to find corporate bonds have credit risk and they obviously have term risk, but you know many corporate bonds that show up in bond funds and things tend to be maybe shorter terms or shorter durations. Whereas government bonds tend to have very little credit risk because you assume that governments will pay their debts and therefore your primarily risk you're taking on with government bonds would be term risk. Well, if you start looking at government bonds and considering credit risk in a government bond, then that would obviously have a very significant impact on pricing of bonds and sovereign bonds or bonds issued by governments around the world make our massive, massive part of the bond market. Just the financial markets. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, everybody talks about the stock market and we've used this data before. The global stock market is somewhere around, give or take a few trillion, $70 trillion. The global bond market is like $130 trillion. So this is a big deal. Like if things happen to the U.S. government borrowing rates and it affects the U.S. government-issued bonds, yeah. 
that affects everybody, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's why we spend so much time talking about the U.S. and not so much time talking about Canada because the U.S. is such a large part of that global market, right? Yeah, like exactly. what happens in Canada affects us for sure, yeah. right? What happens in Alberta affects us. Yeah. But what happens to the U.S. Treasury yield affects everybody. Absolutely. So raising this debt ceiling just simply becomes this contentious political issue. And you see these heated debates between lawmakers. And it's a little tough to take sometimes, Greg. But some argue that raising the limit, again, allows for more government spending and just further contributes to the national debt. And that's what you're talking about, right? That like that may be more of a Republican stance, right? Others argue that raising it risks the government shutdown and harms the economy. Well, for sure. And we know that for a fact. Like, so it's a fact that not raising the debt limit or allowing a default would be incredibly bad. But it is a balancing act. I mean, and, you know, if you just take a look at the situation, as of today, the U.S. national debt stands at about a little over $31 trillion. That's trillion with a tr. Yeah. That's a big number. And it represents over 123% of the U.S.'s GDP as of right now. And listen, there are countries that have a higher debt to GDP level, but this is very high and certainly... Wait, spend a minute on that. Because if it's 123% of the country's GDP, GDP is the output, the economic output of the country. Right. So how would you better describe that to somebody that doesn't know what you're talking about? Well, I think the bottom line is that just as a measure of how the entire GDP of one year of the U.S. would not actually cover the national debt. I mean, so it's a very big number and most most countries strive to keep debt to GDP below 100 percent. You know, and so this is a big number, 123 percent. I think that's lowest. It was. I don't know, down around 31% or something. So, I mean, it can range, you know, broadly and it all depends on, well, what's happened lately? Why has the debt exploded so much? And there's reason for that. Well, I mean, it's a significant figure. You're talking about $31 trillion. I mean, it's really important to note that the national debt is, and we've already spent some time on this, just the accumulation of budget deficits over time, right? So if you don't pay, it's just like your household. If you don't pay your bills one month, they don't go away right? They just get added to the bills for next month and so on and so forth. So in recent years, government spending has just simply outpaced revenue. This sounds a lot like my daughter's Amazon purchases. <laughs> you know, she she seems to spend a lot on Amazon, but doesn't have the revenue coming in to pay for her purchases. Yeah. Well, listen, I was listening to another podcast, which featured a fellow by the name of Jim Tankersley, who's a White House correspondent for the New York Times. And he just sort of dug into the debt ceiling a little bit. And what he did is he went back to, first of all, the question, when was the last time that there was a budget surplus? Meaning when was the last time that that the national debt did not increase? And that year was 2000. So the last year of the Clinton presidency, and there's a lot of good stuff going on at the time. You know, the NASDAQ was on fire. You know, we had the tech boom going on there, which turned turned into a bubble. But of course, it was a boom at the time and revenues were solid and spending was under control and there was a balanced budget. That was the last time, 2000, 23 years ago. You know, and since then, what happened? Okay, so George Bush was the next president, you know, 2000 to 2008. He introduced tax cuts which obviously had a big impact on reducing revenues for the government. Military spending skyrocketed because, of course, after the 9-11 attacks that resulted in the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan, 
And so that had a big impact. And also, I believe it was under George Bush that Medicare drug coverage was introduced. Okay, so prior to that, Medicare, you know, which is for seniors in the U.S., did not cover prescription drugs. And so, so all of those things contributed to a budget deficit, right? Reduced revenue through tax cuts and increased spending through military and Medicare, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So Obama comes along in 2008, and this is the global financial crisis. And so in order to bring the country out of the recession from the global financial crisis, there was lots of stimulus money spent, something like a trillion dollars. During his time, Obamacare or expanded medical coverage was introduced. And by the way, he also extended the Bush tax cuts that had been implemented prior to him. Trump comes along in 2016, right? And one of the first acts was to implement further tax cuts, which further added to reduced revenues and and higher expenses. These are corporate tax cuts, right? Corporate tax cuts primarily, and also for high net worth people as well. And then obviously the COVID recession required a reasonable amount of stimulus. And I believe something on the order of $3 trillion was spent, you know, there. And Biden came in in 2020, here 2021, and had to continue with stimulating the economy coming out of the COVID recession. The bottom line is, since 2000, there hasn't been a balanced budget. And when the work that Jim Tankersley had done, basically in terms of how did Democrats and Republican presidents add to the the national debt, it works out to about $12 trillion each. Yeah. So plus or minus a few hundred billion here and there, Bush and Trump combined were about $12 trillion and Obama and Biden so far. Well, and we spent a whole episode on this for previous U.S. elections, yep. right, in showing the best performing presidents versus the worst performing presidents. And it was just a function of timing. Well, that's right. right. Like Bush got in, as you say, like at the worst time ever. Yes. The tech bubble... financial chaos, and then Obama gets in in 2008, right at the bottom of the global financial crisis. Everything was up from there. That's right. Right. And the point that came out of this particular information is just that it's not a partisan issue. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. Everybody's spending money. Everybody is contributing to the imbalance between revenue and expenses, and it's a national problem. It's not an individual problem. Yeah, yeah, right on. And another one of the key concerns that people don't really think of, I mean, well, the national debt is one thing, but it's the interest payments on that debt that can really bite into that the budgets. You know, if you look at the Congressional Budget Office in 2020, says the U.S. government spent over $330 billion on interest payments alone. So that's a lot of money spent on interest that could be used for other programs. And that number's way higher today because interest rates are way higher now than they were in 2020, right? So that debt grows, the interest payments get higher. It means that higher interest payments can impact things like areas of infrastructure, education, healthcare. I mean, it makes all that stuff more expensive, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a whole bunch of underlying causes of this growing debt. Yeah. And so I think the bottom line, and this is something that we would, you know, it applies to governments the same way it applies to our own clients that we do financial planning with. And debt is something that everyone has to deal with. So I think, you know, on the one hand, yes, the government is in a unique position. They cannot allow a default on their national debt because of the implications, the massive implications that we talked about. 
But there also is a need to address the long-term fiscal responsibility. And just like an individual who are spending more money than they're earning, they need to make adjustments to that. I think the same applies to national you know, governments, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or anyone. Or the national government of Alberta. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we should probably wrap things up here. Yep. But I think the punchline for me is, Greg, if I had to go out on a limb, I would say they're going to pass the debt ceiling and the bills will get paid and this will be sort of much ado about nothing. That's my own take on it. Well, and, and listen, we've talked about in the past, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. So it's not just the debt ceiling. There's a war in Ukraine still. You know, there's all sorts of other issues, you know, that have to be dealt with. And as we've talked about in the past, trying to make investment decisions based on very short-term issues like this can lead to making bad long-term investment decisions. And so, you know, we always encourage people to make sure that their asset allocation appropriately reflects their current situation based on their financial plan Mm -hmm. and not to try to time your way in or out of the market around something that may or may not happen. Well, yeah, because if you do this timing, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and they said, what should I do? Like if the U.S. defaults on their debt, what should you do? And I said, in theory, I guess you would sell everything the day before, like everything. But the problem then is, and then when do you get back in? So even though you could be right, you could be right in your outlook on what they're going to do, what they're not going to do. You could be right in the short term. You're going to be wrong in the long term. Yep. Yeah, and that's the hardest thing that people have to do if they decide to make a market timing decision and exit the market. They're going to exit at a, usually it's going to be at a low point. If they're lucky enough to time it right and actually get out before a downturn, odds are they won't get back in until the market has recovered. In which case, what have you accomplished? One of my favorite conversations with people is, well, I just want to wait until things get better. So let me get this straight. Things are lower right now. You want to wait until they get higher in price yep. and then buy in. Yep. That doesn't seem to make a lot That's of right. sense I'm not, to me. I'm not buying this car on sale. I'm going to wait until it gets back to full price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't try to stick this on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess we better get out of here. Right on. Okay. Good. Well, we'll see you next time. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.